Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CME curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. I think we'll come to our uh, final panel discussion here, um, where we're trying to bring it all together um, and get back to those cases that uh, Raven presented to us. So just to re-familiarize ourselves, we'll start with case one. Re- remember, this is a referral patient with uh, coronal uncontrolled blood pressure, 58-year-old male uh, with a blood pressure of 159 over 93 and a BMI of 29. Their past medical history is notable for type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, of course, um, but no known target organ uh, damage. Both parents have hypertension, and right now they're on hydrochlorothiazide 25, Losartan 100, amlodipine 10, and metformin uh, 1000 BID. So, you know, I want to go down the line with our with our panel and, and ask them about their approach. So, so Raven, wh- what are you thinking when you see this patient in clinic, and where are you going next with them? Yeah. Thanks, Rick. There's a lot of things that I'm thinking and a lot of things that need to be done with both of these patients. And I think, you know, just um, building upon what I talked about is just securing the diagnosis of true resistant hypertension and really making an effort to rule out pseudo-resistance. So these patients need out-of-office blood pressure monitoring. We need to understand their adherence to uh, lifestyle. You know, we don't know much about their lifestyle and how often they're eating out and eating salt uh, we want to know about their exercise. We want to know about medication adherence. Um, we also want to make sure these measurements are being tamed accurately. And lastly, we want to know about their sleep. So these are some of the things that I want to know um, and to help secure the diagnosis. And then other things, I want to know what non-prescription medicines they're taking. As you heard from um, Dr. Bacris, that there's lots of things that can contribute to hypertension, a lot of prescription medicines, a lot of non-prescription medicines. I want to know what other medicines they're taking that are not prescription that could be contributing to their hypertension. And of course, want to evaluate, think about secondary hypertension and really focus on lifestyle with them. So a lot of things I want to do with these patients. Thanks, Raven. George, what, what are you thinking here? Well, I would agree 100% with what Raven said. And basically on this, I'd have to change the recipe dramatically um, and this is a typical patient that I see. Hydrochlorothiazide's gone. You give them chlorthalidone 25. Losartan's gone. You either give them uh, Olmosartan 40 or Azelsartan, a Darby 80. Amlodipine stays. And then I would, but based on that and based on the data, that would take the pressure down into the high 140s, 146. And with the salt, you may be able to take it even below 140. And usually I make those changes with everything Raven said and then basically bring the patient back in a month. Or I actually have the patient check the pressure at home and I instruct them on how to do it. And then they send me a report card in two weeks, how they're doing. And then I see them in a month. And then basically I would probably, if I needed to here, add spironolactone as a fourth drug. Thanks, George. So I think we heard a couple of really important things there. Changing drugs within class, right? So you talked about changing hydrochlorothiazide to chlorthalidone, changing losartan to olmosartan or azelsartan, um, and then certainly following up on the lifestyle interventions as well. Oh, one last thing. Yeah. Major faux pas on my part. SGLD2. <laughs> SGLD2. Got to be on an SGLD2. George, you leave me something to do with well, that? <laughs> <laughs> now, that, listen, here's the message. 
SGLT2s are not drugs for diabetes. They are cardiorenal risk-reducing agents. Yeah. Cardiorenal risk-reducing agents. That's how you have to think about them. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Keith, thoughts here, but also let's, say, let's pick up from where George was. Let's say we make those changes. The patient's sending you back blood pressures that are still systolics 140, 150. Where do you go next? Well, he made a lot of very excellent changes, and I would think that the patient would get significant blood pressure reduction. One thing that I would caution us all against is diet. There is actually a trial called REGARDS. It's a trial that looked at a biracial population, mainly in the southeast, and the southern diet, you know it when you see it. In fact, you're in Duke. You're in Chicago, but you've been in New Orleans. High in sodium, high in saturated fat has been the main predictor of the increase of blood pressure seen in the black population more than any genetic factor. So I would go strong, strong into his dietary history, look at it, see what he's doing, what kind of additional uh, seasoning he's using in his food, a lot of takeout food. In terms of the medications, um, uh, Raven and George have done it all uh, using a more potent diuretic. The loop diuretic would be used if the GFR was less than 30, maybe even less than 40. We don't have a GFR here. The SGLT2 inhibitor is not an antihypertensive, and I'm certainly not making that case. But we studied 150 African-Americans who had type 2 diabetes. The mean blood pressure was dropped uh, 10 millimeters, average systolic blood pressure, 24-hour ambulatory, and that's a lot. Placebo uh, subtracted 8.5, so it was a real good blood pressure effect. But... They had diabetes, they had elevated blood pressure, perhaps they had increase in sodium intake. So in that setting, it was effective. It doesn't mean a person who doesn't have diabetes should be using an SGLT2 for that. We know we use it for heart failure, but not necessarily for hypertension. And it also doesn't mean that if you control diabetes and salt intake that you're going to get the same type of effect I saw in those patients. So I would still um, ask the patient, query them a lot. There's a real-world case we had last week in Tulane, a guy who had really bad hypertension, African-American guy, come to clinic, blood pressure is 160, 170, 180, had him on all the right medicines, and I told the nurse practitioner, I don't believe it. I don't believe the guy's taking his medicine. We did renal aldosterone screening. We even did a a CT scan in the adrenals and superadrenals. Didn't find anything. They called his pharmacy here and refilled the medicine in five months. (laughs) So we could have done what Raven suggested, a urinalysis, but just asking the pharmacist, hey, we're writing all these medicines. Is the guy picking them up? Nope, not taking them. (laughs) So I would ensure his diet, ensure some degree of adherence as best we can, and I would stick with the regimen that my colleagues have suggested. Thanks, Keith. I think we'll go to the second case, and then uh, I do have some questions besides medicines about how you implement all of this. That's a lot of work you all just described in clinic. We heard earlier about having help and having a team, and so we'll come back to that a little bit. Uh, can we stay with that? Yeah, go ahead. Because I think that's really important. I say that, and, and I apologize. I have a, a free association way of talking. you got to kind of hang in there when I talk. <laughs> but I, I said nurse practitioner. It's a team approach. I, yeah. I'm not going to try to treat a guy who's pretty difficult by myself. I'm gonna use an advanced practice nurse practitioner. I'm gonna talk to the pharmacist. I'm gonna even bring in the family, you know, not breaking HIPAA, Mm -hmm. but ask the family for support with making sure that he's preparing the meals or he's eating the foods that we suggested and he's taking the doggone medicines. Yeah, I think this is is really important to be effective is to have that team approach. Let's go to the second case. So 
here on the right side of the panel, this is a referral for uh, quote-unquote uncontrolled hypertension, a 51-year-old female with a BMI of 27 and a blood pressure of 148 over 95. Past medical history is uh, notable for preeclampsia. New onset headaches about three years ago, and during those headaches, her blood pressure was elevated, 175 over 114. She was started on antihypertensive medicines, uh, presumably at that point. Currently on chlorothaladone, 25 milligrams a day, losartan, 100 a day, and nifedipine, SR, 90 a day. So, um, Keith, maybe we'll start with you uh, this time. What, what are you thinking here? So some of the medicines are a little bit different, and, of course, the background is a little different here. Yeah, well, there's several things in the history that are really interesting. One of them is the preeclampsia. It's yeah. kind of like uh, gestational diabetes. Yeah. I've, I've trained long enough to remember where we thought these were just markers of being pregnant. Yeah. But they're not. They're signs that later on the patient may develop disease. Another thing is she had very severe hypertension at one point with severe headaches. But I would caution you that the idea that hypertension is a silent killer is oversold. Many of these patients have fatigue and headaches. Listen, it's just a lack of activity, and you control the blood pressure, suddenly they feel better. So I will really query her as to how she's feeling, how she's doing. The medications don't look bad. Uh, chlorothaladone is robust. You could make the case that she might need a loop diuretic if her GFR is less than 30. I don't see a GFR. Maybe I'm missing it. But if her kidney functions fairly well, chlorothaladone is robust even with moderate renal insufficiency. Losartan is okay. It's a prodrug, has to be converted. Some people don't do it well. And at 100 milligrams, perhaps you can get a better benefit if you went to Omosartan 40 or even Herbosartan 300. The idea of an ACE inhibitor versus an ARB appeals to uh, cardiologists because we love ACE inhibitors. But when you look at most of the meta-analysis and controlled trials, the ARBs are just as good. You don't have the cough and some of the off-target effects. So I'm okay with Losartan, but I probably would change it to Herbosartan or Omosartan at a higher dose. And nifedipine is okay. It's a short-acting drug. She's on a sustained release formulation to try to increase the half-life, but amlodipine has an intrinsic half-life of 25 to 40 hours, meaning that after they've taken it for two to three days, they can reach a steady state, and if they miss a dose, they're still going to have blood pressure effects. So I like amlodipine. It's the calcium blocker that was used in all half, the largest antihypertensive study ever, and it was just as good as the chlorothaladone-based trial other than new-onset heart failure. I'm assuming she doesn't have heart failure. I don't know that. With those type of bad blood pressures and her age, I probably would get at least a baseline natriuretic peptide. I'm a true cardiologist. I probably ought an echocardiogram. But if I didn't do that, I'd get an NT pro BMP to make sure that I'm not looking at a person who has occult heart failure. George. Yeah, I would, I would agree with 99% of that. What's I, the 1%, John? Well, you're going to find out in two seconds here. Hang on. Um, <clears throat> it turns out um, the comment about nifedipine is absolutely true. Um, when, when the switch from nifedipine to amlodipine was occurring, I was a young assistant professor, and I noticed with that change, I actually had about a two to three millimeter increase in blood pressure when I switched to amlodipine. I switched them back to nifedipine, pressure came down. So amlodipine is by far a better drug. There's no question about it, and it's better in many ways. But if pure BP reduction is what you're going for, nifedipine may be a touch better. And there's actually a study that looked at this, and nifedipine 1, slow down, 
one by three millimeters. So nothing dramatic. I agree with that, George. I, I think the vasodilatation with nifedipine may be a little bit more intense. It also gives a little bit more edema. This is a middle-aged woman, and she may get edema with amlodipine, but she probably get more with nifedipine. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I definitely would not keep losartan. I would go to omosartan or azelsartan, a Darby, which is even slightly better. And the thing is, uh, you know, this, this uh, menstrual stuff, we've had cases reported in, in these types of women where it relates to their period. So I'd want a much better history related to blood pressure around the period and what actually happens because hormonal therapy may actually be indicated here for the blood pressure. And we've actually published a case in The Lancet like this where the woman actually had to have her ovaries removed because there was no way to actually control the pressure. And so it's problematic. But everything else that Keith said, I would agree with here. Raven, anything to, to add on that? Or if not, you know, let's say um, you've made some changes and the patient comes back still uh, hypertensive, where would you go next? Yeah, and no, I agree with everything that George and Keith have already said. And so she remains hypertensive. Again, making sure you're getting your out-of-office blood pressure measurements so that you've evaluated for white coat effect, extremely important adherence. Similarly to, to Keith, we, I do the same thing. I call the pharmacies, and I'm actually always very surprised to hear how many times patients have not picked up their refill. So assessing adherence, um, is extremely important to do. Assessing sleep quality, um, as George already mentioned earlier in his talk, um, these are the things that I would do off the bat. And of course, lifestyle, right? Everything comes down to lifestyle here. So really doing a really good history, assessing um, her exercise, assessing what she's eating. Um, and then I also just want to just reiterate what Keith said about with her history of preeclampsia, she's at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So really needing to pay attention, not just to hypertension, but to our other risk factors and exercise is going to be extremely important in her management of her risk factors and minimizing risk for cardiovascular disease and obviously getting lipids, maybe putting on her statin, things like this are going to be extremely important in this patient for her, for her longevity. And then in terms of medications, right, so she's already on a, she's on a, a different ARB, she's on chlorothalidone, she's on a long-acting calcium channel blocker, then, you know, again, my fourth-line agent after I've evaluated for primary aldosteronism by getting in her, her plasma renin activity and a serum aldosterone level, again, at this point, would be still spironolactone. Keith? Since we've been talking about late breakers, um, we have one coming up as an oral abstract. It's a pilot study. But we gave patients valid devices, and we had Bluetooth text. The medical students would then text back. I didn't get involved. And without changing the medications, we were able to significantly lower blood pressure, improve quality of life, and adherence. So I think just that shared decision-making, having her and him buy into their disease state would be an important step. Uh, this cartoon, I actually suggested we show this. This is the Jackson Heart Study, which is the Framingham of the South, but it's in Jackson, so it's mainly African-Americans all African-Americans, and it shows in patients who had apparent treatment-resistant hypertension how poorly they were being treated. In terms of lifestyle, only 1.24% had the ideal lifestyle, 5.9% on chlorothalidone and dapamide, so they weren't using that, and only less than 10% were on a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist, either spironolactone or pyrolinone. So this suggests in free living individuals, this is a cohort study, you're just observing them, you're not treating them, but just observing them. Lifestyle is not being done, 
They're not using the beta thiazide type diuretic, and they're not using the mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. That's what really is happening out there. Great, thank you. I think we'll uh, we'll bring the session to a close. Thank you all for your attention and participation this morning again. So thank you all. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME Incorporated, and is part of our Minute CME curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, Go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.